As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be again in 1 John in chapter 5. We're now in the last chapter of John's letter here. 1 John chapter 5. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord and Father, you've told us that when your word goes forth from your mouth, it will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish your purpose. So, Lord, we trust your purposes in your word here. We find rest in your strength. We find hope in your truth. Lord, by your spirit, would you now guide us and teach us Help us not just to hear, but to believe. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is 1 John in chapter 5. We'll take up this morning in just these first five verses. So 1 John in chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of God. Now, as John is beginning here to wrap up uh, this letter of his traveling testimony of Jesus that's been sent out broadly to the Christians, he's starting to pull together a bunch of themes he's been discussing for a while. He's collecting things that he's already written about, things that we've already begun to, dis to discuss. So he talks here a bit about sonship that we are born of God, adopted by God, and called his children. He talks about love, that, that Christians now are part of this new family of love. We're to love God our Father, we're to love our brothers. And he talks about obedience, that we're to keep God's commands. And obeying God is not burdensome. It's not just a finger-shaking. Obedience is good for us. His commands come from love, and, and they flow toward love. So all these major themes of the letter are now interwoven, flowing in and out of each other. Sonship impacts love. Love impacts obedience. Obedience impacts sonship. We've leaned into a lot of these things already. But there's one aspect of this section of text that we have not addressed, at least not yet. Today we're going to take up the theme of Victory. Victory, or what it means to overcome. It's in 
most clearly in verses 4 and 5, but let me read verse 4 again. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So we'll talk now about victory. Culturally, some people like to say, and even kind of tease and joke, that, that we are, are living in a generation of the participation trophy. If you heard this, you know that, that, that it's not really about victory or overcoming anyone else, but, but really, you know, we're all winners, aren't we? The, the goal is not to be first, but to have fun. And we know, of course, if that's a philosophy of life, there's a lot of problems with that. But that's not all bad either. You know, especially for kids, but also for adults, not everything needs to be a competition. Not everything is a race. It's not always a tug of war. There's not always a need to do better than the next person. You know, a person who is perpetually trying to win, who has a persistent victory urge, a person like that is pretty unpleasant to be around. Because they're constantly trying to one-up you. A person like that is not living a godly life, even. And an obsession with victory produces a lot of things that the Bible condemns. It produces sins of rivalry, sins of dissension, sins of strife and envy and division. It causes a person to become greedy instead of generous because in order to be able to win, I need to have something that you don't have. So I'm going to keep whatever I've got. A person with this urge to, to be victorious usually comes from a very sad place. A person like that feels like they need to, to prove their value, prove their worth, prove that they're good enough. And that's just not the way of Jesus or of his kingdom. Jesus is not pitting us against each other to see who's better than the next guy. Not everything's a competition, but at the same time, we know that life just has a measure of conflict built into it. You know, there's, there's lots of places where there's at least two competing parties who are against each other, and only one can prevail or get the victory to overcome the other. Uh, sometimes that victory has relatively low stakes. You know, the conflict is just for fun. We have sports for that very reason. If you have victory in sports and you win the Super Bowl, there's something exciting about that. Sometimes victory has not low stakes, but medium stakes where a conflict is necessary in some way. So in business, say, a victor might win a bid for a client's contract. Or in politics, a victor might win an election seat to the Senate. Sometimes there's low stakes, sometimes there's high stakes, but sometimes a victory, or medium stakes, sometimes victory has very high stakes. Because a conflict is dangerous. That's what happens in war. 
where victory means one party brings the other to surrender or even to die. And that's the kind of context that John is talking about here with really high stakes. This is a war. A war not just against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. And God has made us to be conquerors in that war, to get the victory and to overcome. So in the rest of our time, we'll look here at four dimensions of our overcoming victory. We'll look at who overcomes, what we overcome, how we overcome, and when we overcome. That's where we're headed. Let's look at the first of these. First, who overcomes? As you notice here, that it's not every person. The ones who overcome are the ones who are born of God. That's what he says in verse 4. For everyone who has born, been born of God overcomes the world. Now, this is not typically the way we think about victory. We typically think of victory in terms of who is the biggest, who's the boldest, who's the baddest, who's the bravest, whoever's the something with est on the end of it. That's the person who's going to win the victory. But here, victory is spoken in terms of birth. Everyone who is born of God. This is in line with what Jesus has told us. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless you're humbled like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's an irony, then, that victory comes not through strength, but through weakness. The overcomers are children, children of God, which means the doorway into the kingdom of victory is small. We have to duck down to enter into it. It's not small to keep people from getting into it or because too many are going to try to squeeze themselves in. It's small so that we'll know that the victory of the kingdom is not by our own strength or size. That victory comes by our relationship to God. So even though we know that this battle is a war, John doesn't refer to us in military terms here. We're not called soldiers of God, our commander. He could say that, that's true, but he doesn't talk about that here. Here the focus is not us as soldiers, but as us as children under God our Father. The victors who overcome are the family of God. And the whole family of God overcomes. Every member of the family of God overcomes. Did you notice that? Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes. It's not that being in the family of God gives you the tools to overcome, gives you the things that you need so that maybe you might overcome. It's that being in the family of God, that itself gives you victory. 
So you don't have to worry that you're going to be the family runt who's, who's trying to keep up with my short little legs and, and, and I'm afraid I'm going to get left behind and somehow I'm going to miss the victory. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry that you're going to be the middle child who gets forgotten at the grocery store. You don't have to worry that you're going to be the prodigal child who goes astray, runs away, and somehow loses the victory. If you are born of God, every single one who is born of God overcomes. That's who overcomes. Now, let's look at our second one. What do we overcome? What do we overcome? The answer here is the world. Verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, we know, I assume, but I'll just be as clear as I can, by the world... We're not talking about other countries or foreigners or anything related to economics or politics or America first or anything like that, okay? When John is talking about the world in this context, he means everything and everyone that is opposed to Jesus. So in other times in the letter, when he talks about the world we overcome, he talks about it in context of overcoming the evil one overcoming every spirit of antichrist. That's what we're overcoming. So if you think that the enemy that you really need to come to overcome is your boss, the enemy that you really need to overcome is your school board or Hollywood or some corporation or Joe Biden or Donald Trump, If that's what you think, you have been fooled into looking the wrong way and thinking too small. We're looking at the world here. John ends his letter right at the tail end in verse 19 with these words. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if we are to overcome the world, we need to overcome the one who holds the whole world in his grip. We need to overcome Satan. That's not meant to scare us or intimidate us. We know that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God is always forever greater than Satan. It's not meant to scare us here, but it is meant to to make us alert, aware of where the real source of the conflict is. And Satan's greatest weapon to try to overcome us is usually not slashing swords or big clanking chains. One of Satan's most powerful weapons in the world is a wink. Just a wink. In the book of Proverbs, there's a mom and a dad who are trying to pass on um, wisdom 
to their son. And as they're talking to him, this is in Proverbs chapter 6, and they're warning him against evil and trying to train him in good and, and, and be careful, they say, about this evil that will come through the eyes of an adulteress. And they say this in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. They say, don't desire her beauty in your heart and don't let her capture you with her eyelashes. Don't let her capture you with her eyelashes. That might sound silly on the front, but we know that's very real. Even the mightiest of warriors who could strike down a thousand men with just the jawbone of a donkey, even that guy can be captured and overcome by just a flutter of eyelashes. So for you, if you really think about what is most likely to cause your downfall, that thing is probably not whether or not Russia is going to start World War III. It's probably not some decision made by the Supreme Court. It's probably not some massive hurricane or wildfire or earthquake. Lord have mercy on all those things, they matter. But for you, the thing most likely to take you down is probably some, something equivalent to a worldly wink from the evil one. And this text reassures us that we who are born of God will overcome the world. That's what we overcome, the world. Let's look now at the third of these. How? If the ones who overcome are those born of God, the, what we overcome is the world, how then do we overcome? The answer here is faith. This one's the clearest one, I think. It's front and center on all these things. Verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is how we know who has been born of God and who is not. John says it several times in the first verse of this chapter. Everyone who believes, there's faith, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And he says it again at the end, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So if the world's weapon is a wink, our weapon is faith. What a strange battle this is, by the way. Winks and faith blazing at one another. And faith, even, is more than a we uh, just a weapon. It's not just a sword. Faith is is the victory. Did you notice that? Uh, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So to put faith in something is, is to surrender to it. In some sense, to put trust in it. So if I put my faith in a babysitter, say, I'm going to trust my kids to her, or him. Guys babysit too. 
I put my trust in her. I give my kids to her. And if I put my trust in Jesus, in God, I put my trust in him. I put faith in him. I give myself over to him. There's a sort of surrender in that. So every Christian victory begins first with a surrender. We have to surrender to God to trust him, to put faith in him, and that faith in Jesus is the victory. We know, of course, that faith doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing, have a snack on the couch. That's not what this is about. You know this already. We are surrendered to God. That doesn't mean we're lazy. That means we've switched sides. We've changed our allegiance. We've been delivered by God and through his grace from the kingdom of the world and of darkness to the kingdom of heaven and of light. So now we fight with all the strength of God's might. So, so when David battles Goliath, you already know this scene, right? When David battles Goliath, he still has to gather up stones for his sling. He still actually has to move his legs to walk up to the battle line to face the Philistines. And he still has to, to look this giant of a man in the eye, a guy who was ready for battle with armor and sword and spear. And David doesn't think that Goliath is just going to roll over and give up the victory because he somehow says so. That would be foolish. At the same time, David does not think that the battle is all up to him. That, that he's coming here with his own strength, that would be incredibly foolish too. Instead, David gives a very clear speech about what is going on here. There's, the scene is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. He says, This is so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. What kills Goliath, then, is not just the sling of the shepherd. It's not just the sword of a soldier. What kills Goliath is a heart of faith in God, a God who wins the victory. We see the same sort of thing on the night before Jesus was crucified. He gathers all his disciples together, and he says to them some very tender words, but powerful ones. He says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's going to be rough, but trust me. Have faith in me. Surrender yourself to me, and I will be your victory. So that's how we overcome, it's through faith. Fourth, and finally now, when. 
when do we overcome? This one's the trickiest of the four we've done, because this one has a double answer. When do we overcome? The answer is now and later. It's a little harder to see in the text without a closer look, but look again at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He says the word overcome in here twice. He says first, everyone who has been born of God overcomes, keeps overcoming, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, something already done. So in one sense, there is a victory that is done already. And in another sense, there's a victory that's not done yet till later. And both of those things are true. There is an ongoing battle for victory and an already secured victory. There's nowhere that we see this more clearly in the scripture, at least I think, played out more clearly uh, than in the book of Revelation. I know the book of Revelation gets confusing for a lot of people. If you read it on your own, a lot of people get stuck trying to figure out, you know, what's the deal with all the horns and horses and, and, and strange-looking creatures? And, boy, there's just too many numbers everywhere, like 666 and 144,000 and 12s and 3s and 7s and, and good grief. But if you just keep reading, by the end, you'll get what it's about that the main theme is that God wins. You can get that. God wins. In the end, death is put to death. Satan and all those who belong to him are cast into the pit. Sin is no more on the earth. There is not a single person that the Father has given to Jesus who is lost. Every one of those people are all raised in victory in the end. The sons of God rule and reign with Christ forever in the new heavens and new earth. It's a glorious picture, and the end of this great story of life has already been written in stone. There's no doubt about it. Jesus is the conquering king of all. Yes, and there's no wonder in Revelation. There's hallelujahs all over the place, and, and people keep singing and shouting glory. That makes so much sense. At the same time, listen, there are Christians living in the book of Revelation, in the account of it. And Christians are not just at the end of the book. They're in the middle, the book of Revelation. And their experience, their lived-out experience now, looks like anything but victory. Those Christians are not just whisked off, beamed out in some rapture that they read about in a left-behind book. These people experience exactly what Jesus said they would. In the world, you will have trouble. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will sometimes be trampled. And so, in the middle of, of the book, we meet several scenes. One, in one account, there's an occasion where there's this creature called the beast who comes from that ancient serpent, the red dragon. 
And we see him in chapter 13, listen, verse 7. And it, this is the beast who's speaking blasphemy against God, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. He's not just warring against unbelievers. This beast is making war on the saints. Zeroed in on the ones who are born of God. And it says here that he conquers us. Some might go, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I thought, Jesus overcomes. Jesus overcomes the world. Isn't that what John just told us? Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory, our faith in Jesus. Yes, that's still true. Has not changed. The beast conquers by taking many, many lives of the saints, which is terrible. It's tragic. It's a little scary. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So Jesus will raise them up. He'll be victorious in the end. We should not make light of the process of that, however. Because there will be a time that for moments, long moments, when it seems Satan is winning when to all appearances temptation is strong, evil is powerful, the danger is real. And in those times, it's, it's not a time for us to worry. We're secure. It's not time for us to worry, but it is time for us to endure in our faith to persevere until the day when Christ's victory in us is completed. And this reminds us that, that we don't want to be the sort of people who say, I'm born of God. I have faith in Jesus. I've overcome the world. So there. As you know folks probably like this, who somehow, in some part of themselves, think that they're, because they're Christians, they're some sort of invincible superhero. That they can just sling a stone at anything that moves because God's on my side, so I'm just knocking things down right and left, at least I think so. These are people that are, that are so busy rearranging their own crown of laurels that they forget that Jesus wore a crown of thorns. And so people like this are shocked when they themselves face any prick of a thorn that feels just a little bit less than victorious. They're shocked when they face the loss of a job or of a loved one, when they face things like cancer or addiction or mental illness or tragedy, really, of any sort. But we know, and we believe, that Jesus holds the victory over all sin and sorrow, so he will be victorious 
in the end. We have a confidence that we will overcome that doesn't make us arrogant. We trust that in all things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. What he has told us here is true. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, help us to believe this with humility but confidence. You are the Son of God, and you have overcome the world. Though the wrong seems off so strong, you are the ruler yet. Lord, would you, by your power, strengthen our faith? Help us to move on toward your victory with all patience and endurance. Help us to believe to the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.